So I thought I'd open this morning with um, one of, man, I'm going to move this. Keep bumping it and panicking. Um, with one of my, <laughs> which is ironic for this story, one of my most embarrassing stories, um, because who wouldn't stand up in front of people and humiliate themselves? But um, have you guys ever heard that advice they give people like who are nervous about public speaking? Like just picture, imagine the crowd is in their underwear naked. Right? What, what you guys don't realize is there's some of us that they have to pull aside and go, you need to pretend like you're naked because you like being up there a little too much. Um, I, yeah, one of those people who um, also didn't hear that message very well um, because I have no problem standing up in front of people and embarrassing myself. Uh, anyway, years ago, um, we're hanging out in what was basically at the time our small group, and uh, except it wasn't a very small group. Um, and I can't remember exactly what was happening that night, but there was some people, uh, it was a very happy atmosphere, very festive, we were having a good time. And uh, everyone's uh, in the kitchen dining room area of this house learning the electric slide. Um, uh, and even though the like 22-step version had been around since the 70s, this was like the new 18-step version that came out in the early 90s that everybody was learning. I don't know if any of you remember this, but everybody was loving the electric slide. So a couple of friends and I were kind of standing in the back of this room watching a bunch of people um, learn the electric slide. We were having a blast. Uh, watching everybody have fun, minding our own business, when suddenly a couple of the dancers spotted us and ran back to grab us so we could go in and, uh, and enter them in hell. And one of, my, one of my friends, like, said a cuss word and left the room, like, didn't even consider it. Uh, and the other one was filming, and so he begged off, like, I have to run the camera. And so I was the only one that got pulled into the electric slide. And... Uh, and so I entered the arena. And uh, a couple of things. When I said that there were people learning the electric slide earlier, that was kind of a lie. There was like teenage girls learning the electric slide. And, um, and a couple moms, small moms, who were like fit to dancing every once in a while. So um, needless to say, I do not fit in to this crowd of people. And, uh, and if I'm honest, I didn't really mind because I like dancing. I'm actually um, not a bad dancer. I have decent body rhythm, and I kind of enjoy it. A little two-step, a little salsa, a little swing dancing. I'm, I'm, as long as I have a partner, I'm fine. I actually like dancing, believe it or not. Um, so I figure, why not? I'll go learn the electric slide. So I'm in the back of the group, which was already a little crowded because we're kind of in a kitchen dining room area. And, uh, and the first time through the cycle of 18 steps, I'm just kind of nodding and learning the steps. You know how you do. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing yet. But, you know, whatever. So I'm kind of doing my thing. And, and mostly I'm two feet taller than everybody. So I look like a dancing bear at this point. And uh, the second cycle of the song comes along. And I feel like I've got it now. So I'm ready to kind of get in. So I shuffle right with everybody. I shuffle left with everybody. I shuffle back with everybody. Boogie, woogie, woogie, woo. And like everybody. And then when everybody kicks through to go the other direction, I thought I was supposed to turn. And I stepped the wrong way right on this girl's shin bone. And and <laughs> I step on her and this poor defenseless girl can do nothing except for fall on the girl next to her who falls on the girl. And it's like a domino of teenage girls with a big lumbering bear trying to pick everybody up because he feels so bad for Believe it or not, I broke her ankle. Like, I actually broke her. So needless to say, my friend caught the entire thing on video. And uh, I actually tried this week to find the video, and I, I couldn't do it. I, I tried to track it down. I was going to show it. I really was. Um, 
But uh, I tell you the story this morning not because I'm masochistic and I like to humiliate myself, but because we, uh, we're studying the Psalms this year during Advent, and today's song is about the connection between music and the body. Um, have you ever noticed that certain music makes your body want to move certain ways? Our family um, went out looking at Christmas lights last week, and uh, we let the kids choose the Christmas music. We took turns from oldest to the youngest. They each got to choose the Christmas song one at a time. And uh, let me just say it was a very poppy Christmas. Um, we had Mariah Carey, of course, some Wham, some Justin Bieber, two trips through Santa Baby. I don't know what was going on there. Um, a kind of hard rock jazz fusion rendition of Mr. Grinch, which was my choice. Um, and two servings of Call Me Maybe. Don't ask. It's a long story. But... Um, but I noticed that it was, there was so much pop music playing that I spent the majority of the night bouncing in my seat. You ever notice how pop music just makes you want to kind of bounce? That's like the natural move that you just kind of bounce while you're, while you're doing it. I grew up listening to like some heavier music when the term headbanging first kind of became a thing. And I don't think anyone picked that name. I think it's just that's what you want to do when you listen to it. Like you can't. And then as, that, as the rhythm of headbanging got faster, there was nothing left to do other than run in place and run into other people and knock them over in kind of a big, moshy pit. And then there's R&B music. That kind of music, when you hear your teenager listening to it, you're like, turn that off. They're like, Dad, there's nothing bad in this one. You're like, I don't know. It just, something feels bad about that one. Turn that one off. It makes me want to move. Yeah. Music has a connection to the body. That is... <laughs> More than just melodies and harmonies and more than just lyric and composition. Music makes us move. And that's why this week's lectionary passage from the Psalms is all about. It's it's all about the movement that comes with music. Through Advent this year, we've been focusing on creativity as we look at these ancient songs as art. The art that their creators intended it to be. These writers didn't know they were writing the Bible. Uh, They thought they were writing music born out of their relationship with God. We listen to a song of hope where the writers look to God uh, and especially God's call to the next generation and the generations after that as our best hope for the future of his people. Last week we listened to a song about peace that was born out of that tearing tension between gratitude for the things that God has given us and the desperate need for him to come in and come through for us yet again. And that we want to be grateful, but we also are desperate for him to show up. Peace isn't one side winning. Peace is not either or. Peace is understanding we need both. We need both a desperate gratitude and a desperate need. And those both live together in us. We need extreme love for every human being and extreme truth for the word of God. And the reason this seems so undoable is because we were never intended to accomplish wholeness which is the word shalom that's often translated peace. It's wholeness. We were never expected to accomplish wholeness alone. We're part of a body. We were placed in a body, and real shalom requires community. Well, today's psalm um, that we dive into this week, as we begin a week-long meditation on the concept of joy, was written for a very specific purpose, and the text will bear that out. We're reading from Psalms 126, if you want to follow along. It reads like this, a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. When the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter. We sang for joy. And the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. 
Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Restore our future, our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go plant their seed, and they sing as they return with the harvest. This song is fun because it's super short, first. Um, that is the entire song, six verses. Um, but more than that, I like uh, that it gives you the purpose right in the first line, right in the title, really. A song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. So it tells you what the song is for. This is a song written for a specific purpose. The songwriter made that purpose clear in a, in a modern, um, if a modern songwriter wrote this song, the songwriter might have opened his song by saying, if, you know, let's say this was a Christmas song, then like every good Christmas song should start, the song I would have said not to be played before Thanksgiving. Like that's how the song would have started, like not to be played before they. <laughs> As tired as I uh, would get of hearing that line in front of every single Christmas song, I think I'd be okay with that um, if every song opened with that guidance. This song is not just any song. This is a holiday song. This is a particular song. This is a song you only sing on certain days of the Jewish calendar. Um, Because the Jewish calendar comes with what we call uh, pilgrimage festivals. There was three of them in a calendar year. Pesach, which we call Passover, Shavuot, which is Pentecost, and Sukkot which is the Feast of Tabernacles. And all three of these festivals, there was also smaller festivals that you, that you practiced in your hometown and with your family, but these three big festivals, these three big holidays, um, were celebrated. You could not celebrate at home. You had to go to the place where the Lord would call his name um, to be put, the Ark of the Covenant. And once David kind of permanently placed the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, Jerusalem became the place you went to to celebrate these three festivals. You went to the city of David. So as with any um, country that has this type of pilgrimage rhythm, the economy built itself up around this travel. Uh, There was a lot of hotels and roads and, and restaurants and things that got built up along the main roads because they knew the entire country was kind of traveling these roads three times a year. So it kind of became what uh, Israel um, was built around. So everybody could have refreshments and, and things like that when they were traveling. Um, but no matter what place you were uh, uh, along the way you came from, the final push into Jerusalem was this long, grueling uh, walk into the city because Jerusalem was a city on a hill, which is supposed to be figurative as God's city is supposed to be a shining light for justice and, and God's reign. But it's also literal in that Israel was literally built on a hill. One of the things that David liked about it when he first conquered it and took it from the Canaanites was that it was a high-walled city built on a hill, really hard to conquer. So if you were coming, let's say, from Jericho, the road to Jerusalem would look like this. That would be the road up to Jerusalem before you get anywhere close. So when you choose a place for God's presence to dwell and you put it on top of the hill and you require your people three times a year to march their entire family, usually on foot, into the city, and your entire population has to do this, you're going to need marching music. You're going to need something to drive the people. And this is where Psalms 126 comes in. This psalm is designed to be sung three times a year, at Pesach, at Shavuot, and at Sukkot. Specifically, right there on this final march into the city, this long last leg of your your journey to Jerusalem was supposed to be, uh, they wrote this song for that moment. 
Obviously, we have no way of knowing what the tune of the song might be. But I imagine it was something like, I don't know, but it's been told. Like something <laughs> like that, you know. Uh, in fact, a lot of, uh, a lot of experts uh, and historians think that um, this song was probably um, sung call and response where the leader would kind of chant it and everybody else would chant the line back and they would chant it back and they would chant the line back. So what I love about this, uh, the motivation behind this song is that it's basically kind of an ancient Jewish pop song. As cheesy as pop music is, it makes you feel good. All pop music is designed to make you feel good. And a lot of us, you know, are kind of embarrassed to admit we like pop music, but there's a reason we like pop music. It's because it makes us feel good. It's okay to want to write music that makes people feel good. So the psalmist saw this moment in the life of almost every Jew where their strength began to fail. They were growing weary, tired, and the songwriter, we'll just call him, I don't know, the Biebs, um, or maybe Justin. Um, the songwriter comes in and says, you know what would lift everyone's spirits right now? A song. We need a song. Look how everyone's dragging and they're tired and they're, we need some, we need to sing. Something to get everyone's minds off their feet and their aching back. Something that even the grumpy kids can sing along to. Something to shorten the miles of this walk. And so we write Psalms 126. And the truly beautiful part about this psalm is that not only does the rhythm and cadence and bounce that, that make this song work, but the lyrics also feed into it. A song for pilgrims descending Jerusalem when the Lord brought us or brought back his exiles to Jerusalem. It was like a dream. This is not only good songwriting, this is really good psychology. Um, and I think parents do this all the time. Put yourselves in the shoes of someone trudging up this hill to Jerusalem. You're tired, you've already walked a long way, and you can't even see the top. All you see is road, and you're exhausted, you're tired. You're beginning to wonder if Passover is even worth this ridiculous walk. You're so exhausted you don't know if you even want to obey Torah anymore or if you even believe in God anymore. Anybody ever been that tired? Like, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. Everyone else uh, is tired with you. Tempers are flaring. You begin to ask, Do, who, who even cares? And along comes the Biebs with this song. Oh, God. Remember those people who were actually thrilled that they got to come back to Jerusalem? Can you feel the psychology there? Remember last week when we talked about the starving kids in Africa, how that never works? I think the writer of Psalms 126 would argue with me. He's like, oh, man, because you're like, I don't even want to go. They're like, man, can you remember how excited those people who were in captivity were when they got to walk this walk? Whoo, man, they were shouting and dancing with joy. Can you feel the guilt start to build a little bit? All right, I'm just being ungrateful. He basically says for 70 years, 70 straight Passovers, 70 straight Pentecosts, 70 straight Feasts of Tabernacle, no Jew was allowed to come to Jerusalem. How excited was that first generation back to be celebrating for the first time in 70 years? It was like a dream. There was no trudging. There was no moping. 
There was no complaining. It was just laughter and joy. Can you imagine singing these words when every fiber of your being wants to sit down and quit and complain about how long the road is? And then, of course, comes the second verse. And the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. One of the great things about pop music is that it's not super complex. You pretty much know what you're going to get. Verse 2 here is more of the same, more of the, not only were the people excited to come back to Jerusalem, excited to walk this walk that you're complaining about, but the nations looked around and looked at how amazing it was. So while the people were walking this very road, singing and dancing for joy, the surrounding nations were wondering at how amazing God has been to his people on this very road. Can you feel the kind of heavy-handed manipulation that's going on in the lyrics here? And that's exactly what pop music's designed for. No one listens to pop music for depth. No one listens, no one listens to marching cadences for good theology. Like, that's not what they're made for. The music is supposed to drive you. And it doesn't hide that for a second. So verse 3 is no surprise. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go plant their seed. They sing as they return with the harvest. This song ends with a cliche platitude. Just just one of those things you say to people. One of those kind of platitudes you say to someone. Hey, those who plant in tears harvest with shouts of joy. It ends with, a, with just a cliche. So now, it's country music. Many people think that this might be an indicator this song was specifically designed for uh, the Feast of Shavuot, which was the harvest festival. They think that this, this, uh, this talk of planting and harvesting might have been an indicator. Because during Shavuot, they always tested the first fruits. It's called the First Fruits Festival. They tasted the very first things that were brought. And it was supposed to be an indicator of what kind of harvest you were supposed to you were supposed to have, and a lot of their their pricing and things were built on the first fruits festival. So some people think this was a first fruit song, but either way, um, this is one of those things that uh, that you never you never actually say to someone who's going through something hard. Like if you were thinking if you were jotting this down, cross it out. This is not one of those things. Hey, I'm sorry you're going through a tough time. Hey, we we plant in sadness, but we harvest with joy. No, don't, don't say that. Um, that's not what you do. This is a cliche, and like almost every cliche or meme, um, no matter how inappropriate it might be, there's also a ton of truth in it. Um, and I think certain genres of music have tapped into to this, no matter um, how cheesy it sounds, because we all know there is just something about a truck. Um, but if you are walking that long road to Jerusalem, wondering if this whole thing is worth it. Where do you want your mind to go? Where do you want your attention to be? On your aching feet? On the dusty ground right in front of you? On your dry mouth? No, you want to be thinking about the week-long party you're about to have as soon as you get to the city. You're about to have the time of your life if you can just get through this walk. 
People made this walk three times a year, which makes you wonder if it was so rough, why keep doing it? And the answer is because in the end, it was worth it. It was worth it. Something that happened once they got to Jerusalem, something about these festivals totally made the walk worth it. Jerusalem was so good that it wiped away everything that went before. Now, it's hard to see this when you're tired and you're hungry and you're ready to quit. But the second you walk through the gates of the city and there's music playing and you can smell the food and there are people everywhere laughing and bartering and dancing and singing, you will forget the road that got you there. You'll forget the long walk ever happened. So the songwriter is saying, I know this is hard. I know you want to cry. I know you're hurting. But remember, no one likes planting seed. That part is terrible, but everybody likes harvesting fruit. No one likes the walk to Jerusalem, but everybody loves the party when you get there. And this is the purpose of the entire song. This is why the songwriter put, it, put in the beginning of the song that this is to be sung on the long road to Jerusalem. When you're ascending that horrible hill, you sing this song. Because I know you're going to be tired. I know you're going to be worn out. I know you're going to be thirsty. I know planting is hard. So don't look at the planting. Look at the harvest. He draws their eyes to something beyond. And incidentally, this is what makes sermons about joy really tough. Because you don't need me to tell you how to be joyful when everything is going well. It just kind of comes natural. You don't need the Bible to tell you how to be joyful when life is all sunshine and no shadows. It just kind of comes out of you. You don't have to remind yourself to be joyful when you just won the lottery. Joy is just kind of what you do in that moment. You don't look at your numbers and go, now what would the proper response be to this? Joy comes naturally. And I know most preachers spend a bunch of time differentiating between happiness and joy, and I've done that too, and, and there's a lot of truth there. But honestly, when your lottery numbers come up and you're a winner, and you're doing involuntary jumping jacks, no one's going to ask, now hold on, are you experiencing joy or happiness? It's kind of both, and it's kind of awesome. For that fact, when your baby says mama or dada for the first time, it's totally based on happenstance. It's totally based on what's going on in the moment. But try to tell me that doesn't feel like joy. I know there's differences between joy and happiness, but my goodness, it's really minute. So for today, let's forget the difference between joy and happiness. Let's focus on joy as a matter of perspective. And here's what I mean by that. In your mind, put yourself on that long road to Jerusalem. Or, or maybe just put yourself on December 13th, 2020. Put yourself smack dab in the middle of whatever trial or tribulation you can think of. Where do you put your eyes? What do you focus on? What do you fix your vision on? We talked last week about how looking back at, at past blessings doesn't always make the current desperation go away. It should. 
When you see God come through for you time and time again, it should, but it rarely does. It's amazing how we have the, the capacity to have God do amazing things for us. And then we hit a new trial and we're like, where's God? I don't understand. And this is where the magic of joy happens. Reg and I were talking this week about the topic of joy and we both discuss our mutual struggle with the concept of choosing joy. Everybody's like, well, just choose joy. Choose to be joyful. And as we both value authenticity, it can be hard to just turn on joy like a light switch. I don't know about Reg, but in my life, choosing joy usually means acting happy if you're not. I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve. If you've known me for long, you usually know when I'm in a good mood and when I'm not. I'm terrible at faking my emotions, so choosing joy can be really tough for me. But what I can do is this. I can fix my eyes on a moment in the future when I know things will be better than this. And I can decide that it's totally worth enduring my current situation because I know that I will get there. The author of Hebrews says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus did not take joy in the cross. Jesus didn't sing a worship song about how awesome God is as his body weight hung on nails. He scream cried Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no one in the crowd that would have told Jesus to choose joy. Jesus wasn't 24-7 joyful. I know that seems weird to think about, but Jesus wasn't joyful on the cross. He did it for a joy that laid before him. He had his eyes firmly set on a joy that was in the future. And I think this is important for us to keep in mind because I honestly don't think we have ever, will ever really fully have joy on earth. We have moments of joy where we experience glimpses of the way things should be, but we know that we're still on that long road. We still sin. People around us still sin, and that sin still hurts people. The world isn't the way it should be. And even our most joyful moments, we're still aware that things are still a little off. And that's why I love what they call the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms, there's other ones that were written for this road. The songs that were written for the long uphill road of life, like that road to Jerusalem. Like Psalms 126, this morning's psalm. These are psalms designed for when the current road is really hard, but the reward ahead, uh, the reward ahead is really great. And this is where we all live. So how do we respond to this? I'm probably not supposed to say this in Advent, but there are times when joy is not the appropriate response. I mean, seriously, have you ever been on a really long hike? Maybe hiked up a mountain or done a really long, grueling activity? How creepy is the guy who's overly cheerful and chipper and joyful in that moment? This is awesome. I love it. And you're like, I want to strangle you and throw you off the mountain. But the people who walk with you, breathing heavy, trudging with you, and they encourage you. The summit is going to be amazing. I've been there before. Keep going. Keep it up. 
The people who whisper that it's all worth it. Trust me. The ones who are breathing just as heavy as you are. But help you keep going. These are the people we want to be on the trail with. The writer of Psalms 126 is one of those guys. We plant in tears. We harvest with shouts of joy. Keep marching. Keep moving. Keep going. It's worth it. I don't think there's a single human who can or should be joyful all the time. I might lose my preacher card for saying that because I'm pretty sure the standard advice is to find joy in every single moment. And although that should probably be the goal, I also think we're supposed to be authentic. In fact, right here in the mess of 2020, I won't even tell you um, to walk out of here and go be joyful. The world's a mess. Ecclesiastes says there's a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance. So let's be honest with each other and admit that we won't always find joy in every single moment. We're going to go through hard stuff, and in those moments we will feel negative stuff. We'll wish we didn't feel it, but we will. We'll struggle to find joy. In fact, we might not even be able to find it at all. But what I love about Advent, what I love about joy as an Advent virtue, is something that the songwriter of Psalms 126 absolutely nailed. We sang a song this morning called Future Past. And we always sing it during Advent because the song says, You are my first you are my last. You are my future and my past. The beauty of Advent is it's not just about Christmas morning. It's also about Jesus showing back up to fix the mess our sin made of things. During Advent, we look back 2,020 years to a stable in Bethlehem, but we always also look forward to this amazing festival where there will be no pain, no anxiety, no sickness. No one treats each other badly. In Advent, we look to the future and to the past. In Psalms 126, the artist starts by telling those who are trudging down this long road to look back at a time when God did awesome things for those exiles. Look back. But then also look forward to this harvest, this, this festival that's ahead. That is Advent. That's where we sit. When we look backward at the amazing things God's done. And we look forward with hope at the amazing things He's going to do. So I will say this. Even though you can't always feel joy in the moment, you can always fix your eyes on joy. Advent is about celebrating the appearing of Jesus in the past, the most joyful event in history, and it's about waiting for the appearing of Jesus, both now in our lives and in the future. We're waiting for Jesus to come crashing into our story, into our church, into our world the way he did 2,020 Christmases ago. An Open Table Community Church, that is joy. That joy is set before us. And it's worth enduring years like this. So you might not feel joy, but you can certainly fix your eyes upon it. So whatever personal hell you're going through right now, 
I'm not going to tell you to be joyful in your pain. If you're too joyful, I'll probably judge you as being weird or fake. I won't tell you to be joyful, but I can tell you to fix your eyes on the joy-filled festival ahead. Jesus is not done with you. There's more story to tell. This is not the end. Whatever you are going through, there is an advent in front of you where Jesus will crash into your story and you will overflow with joy. Sometimes you dance with joy and sometimes you sing about a day when you will dance with joy. But here's the thing. We're calling this series Created to Create because we don't just want to fix our eyes on joy. We want to create joy in others. We want to create more joy in the world. We serve a creative God who made us like Himself so we naturally create. So what, what would it look like to create joy? I have to be honest, one of the things that's been impacting me the most as we've gone through this series and how each of these psalms emphasizes community. I mean, look at this. Week one, turn us again to ourselves, O God. Make your face shine down on us. Only then will we be saved. Everything in this psalm is corporate. It's not an individualistic cry for salvation and hope. This is all of us singing together that God would save us. Then week two, restore us again, O God, of our salvation. Put aside your anger toward us once more. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your wrath to all generations? Won't you revive us so your people can rejoice? Again, this is a song for God's people. I don't even know how you would sing this song alone. There's just nothing individualistic about it. And from today's song, when you brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter. We sang for joy. And our nation said, other nations said, what amazing thing God has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. You notice a writer of Psalms 126 didn't say, you can do it. You can do it. Go. You're amazing. There's a little engine that could. He said, we can do it. We can make this march. God has done amazing things for us. Advent virtues don't work in isolation. This, more than anything, is what is so dangerous about the season that our world is in. Everyone needs more hope. Everyone needs more peace, more joy, more love. And those things grow in community. There's exactly zero coincidence that the only people who are emotionally stronger today than they were a year ago are the people who are staying in community. We were not created to be alone. When God, the perfect community, made man and saw that man in isolation, God said of his own handiwork, this is not good. Alone is not good. We are made for each other. If historians are right, Psalms 26 could have never been a solo. It was a chant that tired people sang together to spur each other on to joy. This is a call for the church to look for those who need joy and start chanting to them. 
Look for those who are getting tired and start helping them look to something better. Start helping them fix their eyes on something better. The world needs some people who will come along and say, let's start singing together. You can do it. Keep marching, keep marching, keep marching. Keep pushing forward to better days. Let's be those people. Let's go to the table.